Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is the pharma guy, John Mack. He's editor and publisher of Pharma Marketing News. That's a monthly e-newsletter of the Pharma Marketing Network. It's an exclusive marketing information resource and communications network for pharmaceutical marketing professionals. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So start by telling us what steps has the FDA taken to provide the pharma industry with guidance and regulations around how companies can effectively and responsibly use social media for marketing, customer engagement, and scientific research? Well, uh, there's a long history there, going back at least to uh, 2009 when the FDA uh, held, uh, I think it was two days of public hearings on the subject. And uh, basically, they used that to get information from the industry about uh, their viewpoints on how it should be regulated. Uh, They had a series of about 19 questions regarding social media and the Internet and how the FDA might uh, uh, regulate the industry's uh, promotion via those channels. And uh, they collected a lot of uh, comments in in the online uh, form that they had afterwards. And they uh, promised to come up with some uh, what are, what they call guidance or guidelines. And I don't know if you're familiar with how the FDA works, but there are laws that are called regulations, which are passed by Congress. And then there are guidelines, which are not legally binding, which is the way the FDA interprets how they will apply the law and they can change their mind at any time when they create these guidelines, but still the guidelines are helpful to the industry. And the FDA promised to have uh, guidelines on social media answering all these questions uh, within a couple of years. Now, that was in 2009, and it's already 2014, and they've come out with only a a little bit of guidelines uh, that address one or two of the issues that they talked about at the time. Talk to us a little bit about the guidelines. Uh, I know you reviewed them. I know you wrote about them uh, on, your, uh, on your website, your newsletter. So uh, give us sort of an overview in a nutshell. Uh, were they any good? Well, you know, uh, it seemed like the latest issue of guide, guidance or guidelines were a little hastily drawn up because Congress uh, required them to come up with some kind of guidance for the industry by July 2014. So it seems like the recent guidance that they've uh, sent out um, had to do with, uh, you know, things like uh, when is the pharmaceutical company responsible for content uh, uh, that's created on social networks that they may own, for example, uh, they may have a Facebook page, let's say, and uh, the industry has uh, typically not opened up those pages to discussion because they're afraid of two things. Uh, number one, that uh, people who make comments 
may start talking about their product or other products and might start talking about unapproved uses of these products, which in the industry is called off-label marketing or off-label uses. And if they, if somebody on the Facebook page were to mention this, well, what does, how is the FDA going to interpret that? So the guidance that recently came out dealt with uh, some of those issues and um, essentially was saying that if this is uh, owned by the um, uh, company, they don't have responsibility for what's posted there, but they you know, have to be very careful about it. And if they still haven't uh, you know, definitely said you know, how pharma companies should handle those kinds of situations. So the guidance was a little helpful, but not all that helpful with regard to that. I think, I think the industry still needs, you know, more feedback from the FDA on that. Have you taken a look at companies that have closed Facebook pages versus companies that have opened Facebook pages? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Facebook um, changed its policy, but before that, even a few years ago, there were a couple of companies that had uh, open discussions on their Facebook pages, uh, and they were what's called moderated discussions. So basically, uh, one company, uh, Janssen, Janssen Pharmaceutical, uh, had a page, uh, a Facebook page devoted, I think, to psoriasis, but um, it allowed comments and it only would delete comments that violated its terms and conditions, and obviously one of the conditions was you don't talk about products, positively, negatively, or any way whatsoever. So uh, their experience, it seemed, was that it wasn't too much to handle, yet somebody had to monitor those conversations and keep track of them, and uh, so it could work, but it requires, uh, you know, somebody uh, to be monitoring that, and this costs money, so it's not just the issue of uh, FDA regulations, it's the commitment of the pharmaceutical companies to, you know, have full-time equivalents to handle those kinds of things. Obviously, information posted to a page could also be distributed to one's followers off-page. So, but but the but the industry and the FDA is kind of looking at the page as something that should be policed by the brand, because clearly, if you follow a brand, you may get discussions on that page, whether you're on that page or not. Well, you know, uh, technically, you, you know, I may not understand all the features of Facebook, but, and I think that's part of the problem with FDA as well, but they're pretty technically savvy. They've, they've caught pharma companies doing things like, um, you know, in messaging to other followers. Uh, when you like uh, somebody on Facebook, you can get a message from them, and uh, the FDA was looking at those messages. So, yeah, they're responsible for um, what's on the page. They're not. It seems like the FDA is not going to hold them responsible for you know somebody uh, reposting things or sharing information uh, from 
on the page with somebody else. I mean, once it's on the page, uh, which presumes that the uh, company who owns the page has approved it, um, you know, then they, you know, basically were responsible for the first instance of that comment. And, um, you know, if it's on the page, that's what they're responsible for. But off the page, you know, they can't be responsible if somebody modifies the content and so on. And the industry has always been afraid of that even before social media came along when you can just copy and paste things from websites. But they seem to have gotten over that fear on ordinary websites, so there's no reason why they shouldn't get over that with social media as well. Let's get back to this FDA guidance. So where are we in the process now? Well, it's called a draft guidance, and um, basically that means that uh, you know, the industry can make comments and criticisms of it, and they really did criticize it a lot. They thought it didn't uh, go far enough, or they thought they, uh, you know, the FDA was trying to hold the industry to, to be responsible for too much, and the, the comments are mostly negative. So now the FDA uh, will have to... Uh, Consider those comments, and the usual procedure is that they need to answer every every comment in another uh, that may be the final guidance. And still, uh, that's not legally binding, but you know it's. Uh, something that they can, uh, that the industry can use to uh, feel assured that they can do things as long as they follow the guidance. So uh, we're waiting for final guidance still, basically. So based on the fact that there is no final guidance available, how are most pharmaceutical marketers hedging their bets? What are some of the basic steps they're taking to protect themselves in lieu of any formal guidance? Well, I think for the most part, they're avoiding any uh, branded type of uh, social media. So you might not see too many uh, branded uh, Facebook pages, uh, Twitter accounts. There are a few, I think. So they're trying to focus as if they were, uh, you know, advertising in Europe, basically working with uh, patients through uh, just the disease awareness or on a therapeutic basis. So they might have, a, like I said, a page on psoriasis or, on, you know, the area where their products are used to, to treat medical conditions. So uh, those are what are called unbranded types of uh, communications. And so far, they've been focusing uh, a lot on that. You'll see somebody like Baringa Ingelheim, that's a German pharmaceutical company that's privately owned. They've been running uh, tweet chats, which are focused on topics like atrial fibrillation and uh, COPD, where they would bring in physicians and have discussions mainly for physicians. Um, now, even those kinds of discussions are 
uh, forbidden in, in the UK, for example. So they try to say, well, this tweet chat is, is not for UK physicians, but obviously anybody in the world can uh, participate and listen in. So it's a little uh, dicey in terms of, uh, you know, getting around the law, but, you know, that's the way it is. We're talking to the pharma guy, John Mack. He's the editor and publisher of Pharma Marketing News. And when we return... We're going to talk about mobile medical apps. Stay with us. Let me ask you a question. How are you managing social media risk? Because your social media policy isn't going to help you manage social media risk. In fact, only two out of every 1,000 people even open the terms of service before signing up for an online service. So the truth is no one reads your social media policy. They sign for it and stick it in the bottom drawer. I'm not knocking social media policies. They're what justify disciplinary action, but they don't get people to comply and they don't teach people how to use social media effectively for business. In fact, after your legal team gets through with it, your social media policy probably discourages your employees to share your messages with their personal social networks. So what are you supposed to do? How do you manage the risks and capitalize on the opportunity? How do you scale social media engagement in the workplace effectively and responsibly? The answer is social media training, assessment, and certification. But not live training. It's too expensive and impractical. Cloud-based, on-demand, social media literacy and compliance training is the answer. Training you can give everyone in your company. Training they can take anytime, anywhere, on any device. Training that's so useful, so entertaining, and so current, it's an employee benefit. We've introduced the world's broadest, deepest catalog of social media literacy and compliance training courseware. It's auditable, so you get a record of who knows what, and it's accessible via desktop or mobile, so employees can access it on their own terms. For a free trial, go to ontherecordpodcast.com forward slash comply socially. See for yourself how you can use our system to manage the risks associated with social media in the workplace. You can even earn a social media compliance certificate. Go to ontherecord.com forward slash comply socially and access your free trial. If you're spending all your time worrying about crisis preparedness, take half of that effort and put it into crisis prevention. Before someone says something that damages your reputation, before you leak customer data, before you get fined by the Federal Trade Commission, certify your people, certify yourself. So John, uh, I noticed on the Dose of Digital social media wiki that you provide a link to from your e-newsletter, um, there is a collection of medical brands, pharmaceutical brands that have either Facebook pages or Twitter accounts, and I noticed that some of them are attributed to different countries, um, you know, for example, uh, Pfizer has Pfizer Mexico, Pfizer Turkey, uh, and Pfizer News, Pfizer Australia. So, but, but then there are others like Roche Corporate uh, that actually have branded Twitter accounts. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, um, I guess, is, is that a reflection of the um, risk tolerance of the individual brands? Why is it some are comfortable with a corporate Twitter account and others aren't? 
Well, now you're talking about a corporate account or a brand account. Like, uh, I know one branded Twitter account that uh, Novo Nordis does with Novomir, uh, which is a treatment for uh, type type 1 diabetes. They have a race car driver who's a, a celebrity spokesperson. He's a fully branded uh, person, by the way, when he's wearing his uh, suit. He has the brand name on the front and what's called the uh, fair balance information, side effects, and so on, on the back of his suit. This is really funny. But uh, they have a branded uh, Twitter account. It's called Race with Insulin. The name of the account does not reflect the brand, but he, he made at least one reference to the brand name, you know, where he uses the uh, Levonier injection pen. Uh, in, during a race, he might tweet about that. But he can't say very much in the tweet about, you know, the brand, because if you start talking about, well, you know, it helped control my uh, insulin right away, okay, now you're making a statement about its use, and the FDA then would require you in the same statement to talk about the major side effects, which is called fair balance. And since there's only 140 characters in a tweet, you know, it's virtually impossible to do that. So one of the things that the FDA has not addressed is how will it regulate, you know, branded tweets that can't get into all that fair balance information. So instead of, you know, giving any useful information about the product, all he can say is, I used my Levomir pen today, and, uh, you know, here's the scientific name, and that's it. So that's, that's called like a reminder ad. You can mention the name of the product. As long as you don't mention what it's for, then you don't have to get into all these other FDA-required uh, types of information, which makes the tweet really a bit useless in my opinion, you know, it doesn't really convey useful information. So it's kind of difficult to have a branded Twitter account, uh, but corporate accounts, uh, a lot of companies are doing that. They're using it for, uh, you know, corporate communications. As I mentioned, Beringa has a sponsored uh, tweet chats and most of these are run by the corporate communications people. And what's happening with social media is corporate communications and marketing activities are beginning to merge within pharmaceutical companies. So it's not just the brand people who are talking about around their brand and not mentioning their brand, the disease that it's treated for, it's, it's recommended for. You have corporate communications people who are working with the brand to uh, develop these other kinds of social media activities like tweet chats. So um, given that social media moves at the speed of a conversation and um, I, I guess, you know, the FDA moves at a much slower pace, <laughs> you know, what sort of uh, predictions do you have for uh, this regulatory agency's ability to really get its arms around um, pharmaceutical marketing on social media and provide useful guidance? Well, 
you know, it's hard to say because they've certainly got a lot of input. They've got a lot of input from, you know, people like Google who, you know, technically have, have, has lost a lot of money because one of the things FDA did was put a slammer on some of these search ads, uh, branded search ads that pharmaceutical companies have been doing where they mention the name of the product and what the product is used for, but then did not mention the side effects, and the FDA put a stop to that. And that was the major source of advertising in, for Google, from the pharma industry at least. Uh, and Google came up with several solutions to that, uh, changing the way its uh, you know, search function could work for pharmaceutical companies and presented that to the FDA, and it was actually used by uh, Bayer Health in at least uh, one instance I recall a couple of years ago, the, this beta version of the search ad. But uh, the FDA has not come out and said, yes, we endorse that. So, you know, on the one hand, they're getting a lot of help from the technology people involved, from the pharma industry itself, and from consultants and agencies that uh, work with the pharmaceutical industry. They've received numerous comments and uh, ideas. They had workshops, and it seems to me, well, what's holding them up? Obviously, the FDA has a lot of things on its plate, and um, maybe this is not as important as a lot of other things that they had going on, but still, it makes them look bad, and uh, lost a lot of confidence in their ability to to answer those 19 questions that had to come out with you know, guide and guidelines that answer the 19 questions that they themselves uh, pose. So uh, right now, maybe they answered one half of the question, so they have a long way to go. Meanwhile, the British Prescription Medicines Code of Practices Authority which oversees the self-regulatory code of the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry, uh, published informal guidance to provide the drug industry with advice on how to use online communications. Talk to us about that. H how good a job did they do? Well, they've addressed some of the issues. Um, I tweets and... Um, uh, you know, they gave me guidelines for using Twitter. Um, but, you know, basically they haven't come up with too much more than what uh, is available from the FDA. Um, so I, I can't, uh, you know, recall exactly which guidance, uh, which areas that they were more strong in, but... Um, it is self-regulatory, number one, and it's very interesting that in Britain, if you uh, violate the code, I mean, they have the jury and everything there, they will publicly uh, denounce you, basically. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't know if you have to pay a fine also, but the thing, it's made public. In the U.S., they're the agency that, the pharma agency, the trade association, also has some guidelines, but they've never addressed the Internet at all. 
all they've addressed are print and broadcast advertising. And even if you violate those self-regulatory um, guidelines, they don't say anything publicly. So it's a different uh, system in Europe. Now, let's uh, close this up with a discussion about mobile marketing apps because that's a pretty robust area, right? I mean, there's a number of organizations that are providing those types of, of applications, yes? Oh, sure, yeah. Every uh, developer in his garage is developing a mobile app. <laughs> and so how is the FDA grappling with those? Okay, well, that's another whole all wax there that they've uh, also come up with some come out with some guidelines about well, what are they going to consider apps that are more or less like medical devices uh, basically um, that's the concern uh, if these apps are meant to be used for example by physicians to help in the diagnosis of a patient for example that app could be considered a medical device and would have to go through the medical device approval process. Now, there are other apps that for consumers that are more like, um, you know, record your blood pressure or, you know, uh, remind you to take your medication, things like that. Those are apps that the FDA said they're not going to have anything to do with because it's personal medical apps or health care apps that are outside their purview because they want to look at apps that are, you know, could be considered medical devices and those don't qualify for that category. And um, what are some of the developments uh, with uh, pharmaceutical marketers with respect to apps that they're manufacturing? I mean, are, are you seeing anything interesting there? What are some of the, I guess, most daring apps you've seen that would potentially require regulation? Okay, yeah, I've seen a couple of them. Uh, for example, Janssen again had an app for uh, psoriasis, and this is uh, meant for physicians. Um, and it the first iteration of that app actually said in the app that it's intended to be used by a physician while diagnosing a patient. And what it had was, uh, you know, you enter in some uh, data about the lesions on the skin, different areas of the body, and once you did all that, it would use some kind of calculation to calculate a a psoriasis, um, you know, probability number. I don't I forget exactly what the term for it was, but this is something that was, was documented in the literature. This is how uh, physicians have diagnosed this form of psoriasis, and it's been published. The only problem was, number one, it actually said it was meant to be used by physicians during diagnosis. So is this a, um, a medical device? It sounds like it. Um, so that's number one. Number two, never never mentioned uh, any sources from whence it derived the formula for the calculation. Okay, and when you look up in the literature, there's some controversy about which is the right formula to use. Okay, and so it never even documented which formula it was using. Now the third problem is. 
and this is where the FDA is really concerned if it's used in diagnosis, is the calculation that the app is doing, and is it correct? Has it been tested? Has it been verified? I mean, you don't want an app doing something like, for example, measuring your blood pressure and giving you false results. In fact, there has been an app that's done that, and it doesn't give you correct results. That could lead to problems where you are getting un, uh, unrequired medical care because an app made a mistake. It, it wasn't properly calculating things. In fact, Pfizer had an app that, had, that they had to recall with a dear doctor letter because its calculations were incorrect. And uh, so they sent out this letter. The problem is the app that they created was a downloadable app. So it exists on physicians' uh, phones, and uh, it doesn't go away. Even, you know, assuming that the physician reads the letter, gets the letter, does he decide to delete the app? You know, it's it's now out there and it still may be used and nobody has any idea of uh, some physicians may be using it without realizing that they're getting incorrect results. We've been talking to the pharma guy, John Mack. He's editor and publisher of Pharma Marketing News. You can find a link to his website on the show notes for this podcast at ontherecordpodcast.com. Join us next week where we are going to talk to Ike Pickett of Alabama Power about how to document social media policy violations. Uh, John Mack, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com.